0: Now, that brings us to the third chapter, and in the third chapter, we have a division that we have made here, and you'll find it in our notes. The first four verses, you have the sins of the princes. Now, the theme of this chapter is that in this third message, he denounces the leaders of the nation for their sins, and we find that. First of all, it's the sin of the princes in the first four verses. And we'll see that now in just a moment. But verses 5 to 8, we see the sins of the prophets. They are the spiritual leaders. And then in verses 9 through 12, we see the sins of all the leaders of Jerusalem. That includes the princes and the prophets, but also the priests, and now we see the injustice of the rulers there in that last section, verses 9 through 12. Now, we'll begin here with the first group in the first four verses, and as we said at the beginning, the way that you can tell these major divisions of the book, he always gives this exclamation of, hear, it's a call to hear, hear all ye people, back in verse 2 of chapter 1. Now in chapter 3, and I said, Here, I pray you, O heads of Jacob. And now he's speaking to the leadership of the nation. And ye princes of the house of Israel. They specifically now at first is to the princes, the political rulers. Then the religious rulers. And then he bundles them all together and even puts the priests with that last group. But he says, "...and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice?" Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means simply this. These people have been in the position of judging themselves. The princes sat in judgment over the nation. The people that were found guilty of a crime were brought before the prince for judgment. And now they ought to know what justice is. They ought to know what judgment is. And this is something that you find again in the second chapter of Romans. You remember the Lord Jesus, through Paul, said this, verse 1 of chapter 2 of Romans, "...therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things." And he doesn't mean identical things, but similar things. And that is, if you sit in judgment on others, then, may I say, you will be known as a harsh critic and a harsh judge, and then you in turn will be judged for that, you see. You've done the same thing. You can look at the other fellow and criticize him. It's easy to do that, you know. It's amazing how we can see the faults in others that we can't see in ourselves. When Nathan came in and told David about a man in his kingdom, that had a great many sheep. And he went over and took the one little ewe lamb that his neighbor had. The poor fellow only had one. And he took that and slew the little lamb. Well, that was injustice. And David is the king. David stood up. And I think he's a red-headed fellow. Man, he was hot. This thing in somebody else, he could see. But he has done the same thing. And Nathan says, you're the man. You did this. And David accepted the judgment and confessed his guilt before God. Now, that is the reason God says to these leaders in Israel, you've been in the place of judgment. You've judged others. And yet you have done the same thing. And my feeling is that the reason so many judges in our land today have been so lenient with criminals and have not wanted the death penalty, that it's actually a bad conscience that's bothering them. I have a notion that many a time when a judge sits on the bench and a man's brought before him accused of a certain crime, that that judge gives a light sentence because it more or less saves his own conscience. And that again, may I say, is the reason there should always be men of character in places of leadership. And I must repeat this, it's not the form of government that is important. If you've got a good king, it's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the character of the leadership that is all important for a nation. Now, their character will determine the way they'll judge. And I think that We've had a very enlightening view of the leadership of our nation today, especially judges, in giving light sentences. It's nothing in the world but a guilt complex that's causing them to give that sort of thing today. Why? Because we need men of character in that position. And God says he's going to judge them, very frankly, I think it's almost a joke when you have a group of congressmen investigating something in politics, and probably everyone's sitting there judging the other fella. They've got a skeleton in their own closet. And we've had reason to believe that in the past few months and years, have we not? In my entire lifetime, I've never felt that there were men that were in places of leadership that were fit to sit in judgment on other men. It takes men a character to do that sort of thing, you see. Now, that's exactly what God is saying to them. Is it not for you to know justice? You're not doing this in ignorance. You have had experience in this. You had men brought to you guilty. Now you are guilty. That's what God is saying. Who hate the good and you love the evil. It's very hard for a judge who was at a cocktail party the night before and he got a little tipsy himself to sentence the man brought before him the next day who has killed somebody because he was a drunken driver. No wonder he lets him off easy. A man who drinks and is a judge in my judgment is not fit to sit in judgment on alcoholics that are brought before him that have killed somebody. Now, I know what I'm talking about, friends, because my mother was killed by a drunken driver right here in Pasadena. And I want to tell you, I would not press charges. I didn't feel I should press charges. But I told the court, when I was called in as a witness, I said to the court, I feel like justice should be done. I'm not asking you to take vengeance on the man. That's all I would do if I did that. All I ask is that justice be done. And believe me, he got off light for a very light sentence. And I always had a feeling as I looked at that judge that he had a pretty bad conscience, by the way. May I say to you, the leadership, they actually hated the good and they loved the evil. Now, folk like that are not fit to be in positions of leadership today. A man that is a congressman or in any position of government, a senator or a judge or any other high position in government, if it's discovered that that man is unfaithful to his wife, is that man or that group of men, are they fit to make laws Relative to marriage? I don't think so. I don't think they're in a position to. No wonder we have the breakdown of morality. It goes to the leadership, and God puts the blame on the leadership here of the nation Israel. And this, as we said at the beginning, God is presenting in Micah a philosophy of human government. And basically, you have to have men of character. And he says here... You hate the good, love the evil. And then he uses a vivid illustration here. Who pluck off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones. In other words, you're a cannibal when you sit in judgment on others and when you love the evil and you hate the good. Verse 3, listen to him. He's talking about human cannibals who also eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin from them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot, and like flesh within the cauldron. In other words, no feeling enters into the judgment at all. No high principle, no character that enters into it. May I say to you that a godless man is the last person that I want to sit in judgment on me on anything. And very frankly, I'm thankful that I don't have to stand before you in judgment, even if you're a Christian today. And you ought to be delighted that you're not going to have to stand before me in judgment. I'm of the opinion that I'm going to come off better in the presence of of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm going to come off in the presence of mankind. And so I appeal my case. My case has already been appealed to him. And I'm not before you today for judgment. And you are not before me today in judgment. And how wonderful that is, by the way, to know that. Now, he says, verse 4, Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he'll not hear them. Who is he talking about? About these leaders. Now, long as they're in a high position and they have no regard for the human side, there's no real sympathy, no real love, and they're in trouble because a power greater than they are has come down upon them. Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he'll not hear them. God says, I'll let the judgment come upon you. He will even hide his face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. God says, now they're going to cry to me. And isn't that interesting? We all cry out to God in time of real trouble. I've been rather amused, and ought not to be, but I can't help but be amused when I hear today the trouble that has come to us. And every now and then, somebody says, may God help us. Well, finally, God got in the door. I thought they'd bowed him out of his universe. He hasn't been mentioned much except in profanity. But now, I find people are saying today, may God help us. Well, my friend, I don't know whether he's going to hear you or not. Because he said to these people who had ignored him and had been godless and had turned their back upon God and had lived godless lives, yet they were sitting in judgment on other people. And they had ground down the people because they're not capable. I don't care whether they graduated from Harvard Law School. That doesn't mean anything. In fact, that could make the worst kind of a judge or the worst kind of a person to sit into a high position because he'd be clever, but he'd still love evil. Therefore, today, my friend, we need men and women who have a heart, who have more than just cleverness with the law. We need men and women today who, I think, know God. Because when trouble comes, God has certainly not promised to hear them. And he told his people then, "...when you cry unto me, he'll not hear them." He'll even hide His face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. God says, I'm going to hide my face from you. And believe me, it looks like He's not doing very much about the situation in the world today. We are in the period of the silence of God. But His grace is still abundant. He's rich in mercy, rich in grace to those who will bow before him and come and accept his Son as Savior. Now, we've come in verse 5 where we begin God's judgment of the prophets. And actually, the conduct of the prophets is just about as reprehensible as that of the princes. In fact, I'm not sure but what it's more so. Because the sins of the prophet is that they misinform the people, and not only that, they mislead them. And this type of thing, they know better, but they do not respond to giving out God's Word. Now, will you notice specifically, for he will spell out the sins of the prophets here. And I read now in verse 5, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth, and cry, Peace, and he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Well, here is the thing that the prophets were doing. They actually were like really a vicious animal, are like a serpent with a forked tongue and a fang that would poison. Actually, they're worse than that because they got up and they used smooth words and attempted to comfort the people. And they spoke of peace, that peace was coming. You know, the futile effort of man for peace ought to begin to shake some people in their thinking that man by himself cannot bring peace to the world. And just by warning it and saying it enough and say you are for it and vote for it, that doesn't mean you're going to have peace. Now, again, Micah makes it very clear that the problem is not on the surface. The problem is not this problem of wanting peace. The problem is that the human heart is wicked. The human heart is sinful. And God says, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now, the contemporary of Micah, Isaiah, is the one who said that. And he said it three times in the last part of his prophecy. That was the great climax he would come to each time, that the problem was in the human heart, that the problem is there. It's not a question today when I make a statement that we cannot have peace today. Well, I generally get two or three letters from some well-meaning folk, and they're very lovely folks. They write a lovely letter, and they say, oh, Dr. McGee. Don't be so pessimistic. Don't say that. We should continue to try to bring peace in the world. We should continue our efforts in that connection. And they're sincere in that. And it sounds good. But friends, may I say to you, it's one of the most false teachings that's abroad today, that man can make peace that way. I want peace as much as anyone wants peace, but I want to go at it God's way. The individual must first of all know what the peace of God is. How are you going to know it? Paul says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have peace with your fellow man till you have peace with God and the Human heart is one that you just can't trust at all. The heart's desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? You and I really do not know how bad that we really are, and that we can stoop and go probably as low as any creature can. In fact, we talk about we've come from animals. The proof that we have not come from animals is that man can go lower than animals. Animals can go as low as mankind can go. Animals don't go out and get drunk. Animals today do not of their own, do not desert their offspring. They follow a certain rule and a certain pattern. But mankind can go lower than the animal world. Now, that is the thing. The prophet is a prophesying peace when actually Assyria in the north was getting ready to come down upon them. And today, there is efforts being made in different sections of the world to get people together and to get them to sit down at a table and reason out and not go to war. And in spite of all of that, and now for at least about 6,000 years of recorded history, Man still goes to war. He still fights among themselves, one nation against another nation, one tribe against another tribe, one family against another family, one individual against another individual. Why do that? We ought not to. It's not to the advantage of either side. But we do it because we're alienated from God. And we're in rebellion against them. But we won't face up to what the real problem is. We want to smooth the thing out with smooth words. We want to say, we're going to have peace. Well, may I say to you, we've been saying it a long time. And these are false prophets. That's what God calls false prophets. And because they do this sort of thing... God is going to pronounce upon them the calamities that are going to come upon them. Listen to verse 6 here. He says, "...therefore night shall be unto you." And night and darkness, as we've seen in the prophets, always speaks of judgment. And it speaks of judgment in two different ways, of the direct intervention of God in the punishing of the offender, and then in the silence of God, in not giving any revelation to man at all. And so here we have mentioned again, "...therefore night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision." That is, God will not reveal any new truth to you. "...and it shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine." and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. In other words, the judgment that is coming to them is called here darkness, and the sun will go down. And what he's talking about, there will not be any light from the word of God, the light which they formerly had from God. They will no longer have this cessation of prophecy. Now, you'll recall that actually Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, made reference to this. He said, Love never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Well, they'll fail in two different ways. They'll be fulfilled. And when they're fulfilled, then... They have failed, that is. They no longer look forward to the future. In other words, they're no longer prophecies. They're now history. But in another way, then God does not reveal anything new to them. You have quite a hiatus between the Old and New Testament of approximately 400 years. The sun had gone down. And Malachi, the last one, promised that the sun had come up again. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. But they were entering the night at that time because there be no purpose of the sun coming up if it hadn't been night. It wouldn't make sense. And so they entered a long night. And that is the picture that is presented here. We today have moved into a unique position As a nation, I think very much the same position that these people had moved into at the beginning of our nation, and it's so easy for the critic today, and the very sophisticated historian today likes to tell about what barbarians our ancestors were, how narrow-minded they were, and what bigots they were that came to this country. Well, they were human beings, but they had a reverence for the Word of God. Even those that were not Christians had had a reverence for the Word of God, and they had a certain knowledge of it. Because actually, the reason that both Harvard and Yale universities were founded were to train ministers so that people in this country would not be in the darkness of ignorance of the Word of God. But I tell you, the light's gone out, hasn't it? And today, the very places that were supposed to be great educational centers, great lights for the country, they turned off God long time ago. And nights on us today. And the universities have had the worst riots of any places. They have become the very hotbed today of darkness. And that is where this worship of Satan originated in our day, and it's where it's being propagated today. I had a clipping the other day where a professor has gone off into this sort of thing, the worship of Satan today, and indulging in the occult. May I say to you, we're in a period again, it would seem to me, when the sun of Revelation has gone down. Now, what I mean, actually, by Revelation is illumination of the Word of God. That today, the very centers that should be giving light from the Word of God are not doing it anymore. In fact, they're rejecting it, turning their back on it, and at the same time turning to the occult. Now, that's exactly what he's talking about here. Therefore, night shall be unto you. Ye shall not have a vision. It shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine. The sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Now, will you notice? He says, "...then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there's no answer from God." In other words... They will be in such gross darkness that those that are false prophets, God will make a fool of them by the fact that their prophecies do not come to pass at all. You will recall that was the thing that Ahab discovered. Of course, he discovered it too late that all these prophets that were before him that said for him to go out and fight in the war, The only one man that was God's man, Micaiah, said, there's one thing for sure, if you go out, you won't come back. You'll be slain. And it's too bad that Ahab didn't listen to him because he didn't come back. He was slain, as the prophet of God had said to him. And we just well tell the truth today. Friends, there's no use trying to cover up this idea even of church membership. That has become almost revolting when you hear today some man that has been a leader and looked up to and even quotes the Bible every now and then. And then we find out what a sinner that he really is. And we see many prospering today as church members. When you go back and read the 12th chapter of Hebrews again, we looked at that some time ago. And in that, We saw that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, And every son that he receives. And why does he do that? Well, he says that I don't want you to be illegitimate. And I chasten you. I discipline you so that you can know and the world can know that you're my child. William the Conqueror actually signed his name William the Bastard because he was illegitimate. And... I'm of the opinion that a great many church members today could sign their name the same way. I'm a deacon in the church. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm a leader in the church. And I'm a preacher. But you'd have to write under it what William the Conqueror wrote under his name when he signed it. I really am not a legitimate child of God. I have not really been born again. I do not really know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I do not love him. I do not seek to serve him. I'm not interested in his word at all. Now, these false prophets, you see, they were in this position. God was going to make them ridiculous, and the light of prophecy would go out, and they were speaking these smooth words. Why? They were words that would comfort the people. The people had itching ears. And the prophet would scratch at them by saying something they wanted to hear. And then they, in turn, scratched the prophet's ears because he had itching ears. They told him how wonderful he was. They said, my, what a great preacher you are because you say such nice things flowery, lovely things, and everything must be all right. And they were living in luxury. But my, the morality was horrible and was frightening. Now, will you notice, Micah's very clear to separate himself from that group. In verse 8 he says, "...but truly I'm full of power by the Spirit of the Lord." and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. He says that it takes intestinal fortitude to say what I'm saying, but I'm going to say it because I believe that the Spirit of God is with me. In fact, Micah could say, I know the Spirit of God is leading me to say what I'm saying. It's wonderful to be in that kind of a position My friend, now will you notice as we come down to the last division here, 9 through 12, we have now the sins of the leaders of Jerusalem. And it's specifically now he turns to Jerusalem. Heretofore, it's been Israel in the north. But now he turns specifically to Jerusalem. And he bundles together here the prophets and the princes and the priests, and the judgment is on all of them. Now, will you notice the things that he says here? Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob, and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor justice and pervert all equity. Now, he says, listen to me, I have something to say to you. They build up Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. Well, How do they do that? Listen to him. Verse 11. Her heads judge for reward, and her priests teach for hire, and her prophets divine for money. What is the thing that they all have in common? Greed, covetousness. And that, my friend, was the worst kind of idolatry even in that day of idols. And today we don't have an idol sitting around Anywhere, at least I hope you don't, a great many people are becoming very superstitious today and have little gadgets around, and they follow their horoscope and all that sort of thing. But we still haven't reverted to the base idolatry that was in existence in that day. But now he puts into focus their real sin, and it is idolatry, for covetousness is idolatry. And the judge was judging for reward. And the priests were teaching for hire. And the prophets, they were doing it for money. And therefore, since they were all doing it for what they could get out of it themselves, then they did not take in consideration God, nor did they take in consideration other people. They were willing to walk over them. No wonder the prophet said, you eat them up like a cannibal. You're eating the people up. Why? Because of your greed and your love of money. That, my friend, is probably the root trouble today in many places. When the leadership of a nation is evil, no form of government will work. I don't care what it is. That's what he's saying to his here. Now will you listen to him in this last verse here, verse twelve Therefore shall Zion for your sake be ploughed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. And you can look at Jerusalem even today, but if you want to read Jeremiah twenty six, eighteen, you'll find out this came to pass. And even Jerusalem today bears the star marks of the fulfillment of this prophecy here. Friends, we come now to a new section in the little prophecy of Micah. The little prophecy of Micah can be compared to a Jewish day. It's the evening and the morning that you have here. It opens in the darkness of night, and the first three chapters of Judgment. As we've seen, who is like unto thee, that is, a God like unto thee, proclaiming future judgment for past sins. That was chapters 1 through 3. But even in that section, that little ray of light, like breaking through a very dark, stormy cloud, breaks through. But now we've come to a new section here prophesying future glory because of past promises, and that's chapters 4 and 5. And there'll be a little judgment in this section, but the glorious thing is that it's now the light with every now and then a cloud passing across the brightness of the sun. And in chapter 4 that we've now come to, we have prophecies of the last days. Now, it opens like this, and I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 4 of Micah. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. Now, this is a very remarkable passage of Scripture that we've come to, and it may sound strangely familiar to some of you because it's very similar to the second chapter of Isaiah. And you must remember that Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, and the scholars, both conservative and liberal, down through the years have batted the ball back and forth Did Micah copy Isaiah or did Isaiah copy Micah? And very candidly, I think that that's more or less a waste of time because nobody has the answer to that. And I like it better like this that the Holy Spirit is the author and he was able to say the same thing through Isaiah and Micah. And the reason he said it twice is because it's important. And that's the reason that we should look at this rather carefully. And it's rather like a story I heard about Mel Trotter, the evangelist of a former day, a man that God wonderfully used. And this man got up to give a message in Atlanta, Georgia. And he said, the sermon I'm going to give, I actually got it from Dr. Morgan. And I've always given him credit for it. But he says, since I first gave it, why, he said, I found out that Dr. Meyer had it in one of his books. And he said, I don't know where Dr. Meyer got it, and therefore I do not know who to give credit for it, so I'll just preach the sermon. Well, I feel that way about Micah and Isaiah, chapter 2 of Isaiah and chapter 4 of Micah, the way they both begin They both go back to one author, and that author is the Holy Spirit of God. But now notice, as we come to this chapter here, and this verse in particular, it opens with this little conjunction, but. And that is one that generally is used for a contrast. And you have a contrast between what went before. And of course, that would be, in particular, the last part of chapter 3, and the last verse of chapter 3, verse 12, reads, "...therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest." Now, actually, Jeremiah, in the 26th chapter, verse 18, quotes Micah as saying this, so, Jeremiah confirms it, and it did take place during the time of Nebuchadnezzar when he destroyed Jerusalem. And if you want to know how important that is, or how significant it is, then read the first few chapters of Nehemiah, and you'll find out when he went back to Jerusalem, he found it in a mess. It actually lay there, the debris and ashes and rubble and ruin, and it looked like a hopeless task to rebuild the city. But, of course, they did that. And it was actually the Talmud, which is a Jewish writing. It records the fact that at the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Titus in 70 A.D., that an officer in the Roman army, and he's even given the name of Rufus, he plowed up the foundations of the temple with a plowshare. Now, there are those that reject that tradition, for that's what it was, but actually Jerome noticed it, and Maimonides, the Jewish philosopher, also noticed it and recorded it. I rather think that it is accurate tradition that, frankly, both of these men, Nebuchadnezzar and certainly this man Titus, who hated both Jews and Christians, was certainly capable of doing a thing like that. Well, at least Micah and then Jeremiah quotes him as saying that Zion... "...shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps." Now, I'm not concerned about whether Nebuchadnezzar did it, or whether Titus did it later on, or whether even both of them did it, which I think is accurate. But regardless of that, the facts are, and they have been substantiated, that was the situation in Jerusalem when Nehemiah returned, and it was the situation of Jerusalem after the destruction of Titus in 70 AD. Now, this that's coming up in chapter 4, especially the first part here, is in contrast to it. It says, "...but in the last days..." Now, he's moving beyond the destruction of Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of Titus, And beyond any other destruction, that's taken place to the last days. Now, we have seen that the last days are used in the Old Testament as actually a technical term. It's a phrase that has a very definite meaning. And our Lord identified it and labeled it. He called it the tribulation, the great one. That is the great tribulation period. That's when these things then would come to pass, and then at the end of them, the Lord Jesus would return to the earth, and His return would end the great tribulation period, which is a brief period of, I believe, seven years, approximately that. And then the millennial kingdom is established on earth by the Lord Jesus personally coming to the earth. "...so that the last days embrace both the great tribulation, the return of Christ to the earth, and the establishment of the kingdom here upon the earth, the millennial kingdom." But in the last days. Now, he's moved out and beyond all local situations. And he's looking now down to the future. And as we said, the darker it got in Israel the brighter the future was for these people. And that is always true. They tell me that if you go far enough down in a well and look up, you can see the stars. And when they hit bottom, that's when they could see the stars. They could see the light out yonder in the distance, the distant future. Now, let me read on. "...but in the last days it shall come to pass." that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. Now, we mentioned when we were dealing with this almost identical passage in Isaiah 2, that the word mountain is used literally, and it's also used figuratively. Daniel uses it in a figurative way that that stone cut out without hand, it filled the earth. That stone is Christ that is coming. And it became a great mountain that filled the earth. Well, what does that mean? That is certainly giving a spiritual interpretation of it. And we have no right to spiritualize unless we have scriptural authority for it. And we do for this, that what he's talking about here is a mountain of kingdom that's to be established here upon the earth. But I would not rob it of the literal sense also for the very simple reason that Jerusalem is set upon a hill. Scripture makes that clear. And all you have to do is to go over there and take a look. It's on a hill. And a city that's set on a hill just can't be hidden, the Lord Jesus said. You couldn't hide Jerusalem. So we're talking about Jerusalem here as we shall see. And it's the kingdom that will be centered, that it will be the capital of the earth, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. Now, they're not flowing in that direction right now. The flow is in the other direction, and that's at the time I'm making this tape. The way the world conditions are changing, you hear this in a month's time. It could altogether be different. But right now, the flow is in the opposite direction. This is not being fulfilled today, and of course, will not until Messiah comes. Now, will you notice verse 2 in this connection? "...and many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob." And he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, that's not fulfilled. And again, may I say that this chapter, and I've called attention now to many chapters, but here is another chapter, therefore, among many chapters among the prophets that make it clear that the present return of these people is not a fulfillment of prophecy. This has not taken place today. And isn't it ironical that this nation and the nations of the world had their oil supplies cut off? Why? Because of Jerusalem. They want Jerusalem returned back to the Arabs, you see. Don't tell me that Jerusalem is a city that is actually in the hands of Israel and they've got it back because that's not quite true. It's not quite accurate in this world today where history is flowing and one crisis after another and you cannot make any statement on a basis of what is true right now. And that's my reason for saying this. I'm not trying to say because of present circumstances, and some of you will hear this when the circumstances have changed, but regardless of what they are, we are not seeing the fulfillment of prophecy, because the nations of the world are not going to Jerusalem to hear from the Lord by any means. That certainly couldn't be said, and we're told in the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. Now, that's the one place where I could supply you, which I won't, but I could supply you with the name of several missionaries in that city who themselves are Jewish, who have been persecuted for presenting Christ and the Word of God. The Word of God is not flowing from Jerusalem. I don't know what I have to say and how many times I have to say it for this thing to get through today, that all of this sensationalism that's being built up. And after all, after you've just covered prophecy one time, you have to go back over it and say the same thing. But this itch today for prophecy causes many men to appeal to a great many baby Christians. Little baby Christians, and they want the bottle, and they want the bottle to be warm and sweet. And therefore, it's Nice to hear that we're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy, and that means the end is around the corner. And even they set dates. Nobody knows. I think we're drawing near the end. But, my friend, I have no direct wire from the Lord, nor do I interpret prophecies certainly like this. And I just wish these brethren would consider all the prophecies. Why not go through the Bible? And consider all of these prophecies. We have to do it in this through-the-Bible program. And it's quite obvious that when you look at a prophecy like this, you just can't say this is being fulfilled today. As far as I know, the Bible Society is not publishing Bibles in Jerusalem and sending them out to the ends of the earth. That's one thing you couldn't do there. It just would be impossible to circulate the New Testament from that place. The Word of God is not going out from Jerusalem today. So let's not build up an emotional complex here that because certain things have happened, we're seeing prophecy fulfilled. I just want to know the prophecies that are being fulfilled. This one is not. Now, verse 3, "...and he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off." Well, who is this? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Messiah when he returns to the earth the second time. He has not yet come, and these things can't come to pass until he does. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, that's on the United Nations. And if those boys really have, which I don't think they have, beaten their swords into plowshares... They've just got a bigger instrument to beat each other over the head. And if they are turning their spears into pruning hooks, they're not using that pruning hook to go after fish. They're using those pruning hooks to gouge some other nation or some other people, and especially those that are weaker than they are. May I say to you that we're not living in the day when you can do this sort of thing. And I don't think that that should be on the building of the United Nations because of the fact that there is probably the biggest box and ring that there is in the country. They are really knocking each other out there. There's very little agreement there. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, it's obvious we haven't come to that. And only when the Prince of Peace is ruling. He's not ruling today, my friend. And as a result, we are not to beat our swords into plowshares. We should keep our powder dry. And this idea that you can disarm America, and how they ought to cut down on armaments, and certainly anyone that believes in peace and wants peace would like to see the armaments cut back. And we'd like to see our tax dollars going into something else. But my friend, long as we are living in a big, bad world, and long as we're living in a world not of make-believe, but of reality, long as we are living in a world where you have to get right down with the nuts and the bolts and deal with things as they are, the Lord Jesus said, "...a strong man armed keepeth his household." How does he keep it but turning the other cheek? That's not what he said. He said that he keeps it by being armed. Now, that is a philosophy today that's not popular anymore. They quote just one side of the teaching of Jesus. And my friend, when you go to the Sermon on the Mount to get that, remember it's the king speaking, and he's speaking of a time when he's going to be reigning on the earth. And I just haven't discovered that he's reigning in the world today. Now, when he reigns, I intend to get rid of any protection. I'll take off every lock off of the doors. But until then, I'm not only going to put one lock on. I got two locks on. And I think you'll be wise if you do that sort of thing. We're living in that kind of a world. These prophecies are not for the present hour. They're for the last days, if you please. And let's put them in their proper context. Now, verse 4, will you listen? But they shall set every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and none shall make him afraid. Now, you want to tell me that that's being fulfilled in Israel today? Well, they're frightened to death. They're absolutely frightened. Why? They're not there according to fulfillment of prophecy. That's why. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Now, God has said this. God says when he puts them there, they'll live in peace. They're not living in peace. For all people will walk, everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And there's a much better translation of that than this. The American Standard Version has it, "...for all the peoples walk, everyone, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of Jehovah our God forever and ever." The thought is, in the past they walked after their own God. But in the future, they're going to walk in the name of Jehovah our God. That is the thought of the verse. Now here, in the fourth chapter, the subject had changed. "...he passed from the darkness of the night to the light of the day. There'll be a cloud or two passing over the sun in this section, but for the most part, it's as bright as the noonday sun. And we have here actually a very great prophecy of the millennial kingdom. And the picture that's given here is a day when God will return them back to the land. Now he's going to make that very clear In this section here, that begins with verse 6. And we have here, therefore, in verse 6, and I'm reading, in that day, and here we go, this is another reference to the last days. The day of the Lord. We picked that up way back at Hosea. And we found out that the first of these writing prophets and all of the major prophets picked this term up. And that day of the Lord is a specific term. And it begins with the great tribulation, the night, just as this book began with the darkness of judgment. And it moves on to the light of the new day, that millennial day that shall break upon this earth. In that day saith the Lord, Will I assemble her that is lame? And who is that? That's the nation Israel and will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And it looks as if God takes credit, or probably, let's say, takes the blame for that which has happened to the nation Israel. I was talking to a man in front of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem several years ago. And he was a Jew that had come out of the Nazi persecution. He had escaped death, by the way, although he'd been sent to one of the concentration camps. And his argument to me was this, that he had become an atheist, he said. He said, where was our God? Why didn't he help us during the time of our trouble? Well, why didn't he deliver us? And I told him, I said, well, to tell the truth, I think he was around. But I said, maybe you'd like to blame him for the trouble that happened to you. And he says, well, I certainly do. If there is a God, he would have responded. I said, no, you folk had an opportunity way ahead of us. I said, when you had a knowledge of the living and true God as a nation... My people, my ancestors were heathen, pagan in tribes. One tribe in Germany and the other tribe in Scotland. And they were, oh, they were dirty, filthy, ignorant, heathen. And you had the light. And some of your people brought the light to my people back in those days, and I'm grateful for it. And I said, in one of your own books, God makes it very clear, and he not only did it in one book, he made it clear in great emphasis. He says, I have afflicted Israel. Now, I said, blame God for it. And if you'll just read it all, you'll find out that you not only can blame him, but he says, I'm not through with you. He intends to regather you, and you will by that time have learned a lesson that apparently you haven't even learned now that you cannot turn your back on the living God, especially when you have knowledge of Him, without being punished. This is God's universe, and you had a knowledge of Him, and you rejected that knowledge. And, of course, that's the position and condition that our nation is coming in today. That's the thing that alarms me today is the ignorance of the Word of God in this land of ours Not only ignorance, but ignoring the Word of God, making light of the Word of God. They have this type of thing that even comedians use today. The devil made me do it. (laughs) He did not. It's because you've got an old nature that's as mean and as alienated and far from God as it possibly can be. Don't blame the devil because you're the type of person that you are. Because you've got an old nature. That's the reason. And then others, well, I'll tell God on you. You won't tell God on anybody. You don't have to tell him about somebody else's sin. He already knows it, and he knows yours. You can't make light of him and reject him. God says, I have afflicted you. And God takes the blame for it, and he never asked me to apologize or to try to explain it away. So I think he did it, friends. And that ought to be a warning to us today as a great nation. Now, he goes on to say here, verse 7, And I will make her that was lame a remnant. Now, I want to dwell on this word remnant, because after all, down through the long history of the nation Israel, it was never a 100% nation worshiping God. I have my doubts that there ever was a time, even in the greatest period, when you could say they 100% had turned to God. Always it was a remnant, and God always preserved a remnant. It was actually a remnant that entered the land that came out of Egypt. The generation that came out did not. Their children did. They entered the land, a remnant. It always was that remnant that God saved, by the way. And even in the days of Elijah, Elijah got very pessimistic. He said to the Lord, I only am left. Why, God says, you're not the only one. I've got 7,000 in these mountains that have not bowed the knee to Baal, but they sure were running from Ahab and Jezebel, I'll say that and. Elijah didn't know about them. And I'm of the opinion that two things are true. I think that today they're more believers than we think they are. Because I think that there are some that are like that 7,000. And they're like the folk that never write to us. Somebody told me that only one out of 10,000 listeners write to any radio program, and said he thought our program probably had a little better batting average than that, but not much. One out of 10,000. I don't know about them, I can tell you that. I don't hear from them. Elijah hadn't heard from them. They hadn't been writing to him, encouraging him, standing for God. But God had a remnant. He's always had a remnant. And there was the few there at the coming of Christ. Don't say the nation Israel rejected Christ. They did not. There was a little remnant that received him. And on the day of Pentecost, there was a great company that turned to Christ. But a remnant, always been a remnant. And very frankly, I think in the church today. Now, let me be very specific. I've made the statement, I think there are more Christians today than you think there are. I know several people that are not members of any church. They're a little better toward the church, the local church. And they don't join. But I think they're believers. And I think that in the church today, that there's only a remnant that really are the believers. I think we'd be surprised if we knew how few church members, and generally many of them that are active today in Christian circles, whether they're genuine believers or not. And we may be in a period today that's going to bring persecution, or as the writer to the Hebrews made it very clear. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, And every son that he receives, he's going to put you through the mail to test you, you see. If you've got some metal and you think it's gold, you can take it to the assayer's office. And I tell you, he'll really put the heat to it. But you'll find out whether you've got gold or not. And God does that for those that are his own. And I'm of the opinion, very frankly, that all the church members, we've been in an affluent society. We've been in a period that there's been a lot that's been phony. There's been a lot of pseudo-saints that are around today, and they are not genuine by any means. They have not been born again. We saw in First John, there's a real test. You can put the acid on them and determine whether they're children of God or not. God has a remnant today, and he has a remnant In the nation Israel, there are, I think, more in the nation Israel that are believers than you think there are. Our letters reveal that, that there are many of them that are believers. You may not know about it, and I think that that's true today in any place. I think that today one of the things that's keeping many people out of good churches are the action of some of the members of the churches. I think we need to be very careful today as a member of a church that we are not shutting the door. At the same time, we're trying to talk about how evangelistic we are. We're actually shutting the door to a great many believers. This word, the remnant, is a very important word in Scripture. Don't just rush over it. I read this again, verse 7. And I will make her that was lame a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And that hasn't happened yet. This prophecy is not fulfilled, as you can see. Verse 8, And thou, O tower of the flock and stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come... Even the first dominion, the kingdom, shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And that kingdom has not come. And if they are back there today for anything, they're not back there for the kingdom. They are back there for the great tribulation period. Now, here a cloud passes over the sunlight of this chapter. And we have here what a great many believe is the Babylonian captivity. There are others that believe that it's the captivity by Titus. And there are others that believe that it has to do with that which is future, that has not yet been fulfilled. Well, I think that this prophecy is rather specific, so let's look at it. He says, "...now why dost thou cry out aloud?" Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perish? For pangs have taken thee like a woman in travail. Now, this definitely, to me, is a picture of the Babylonian captivity, for he makes it clear in the next verse, and I should read it. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered, there the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now my feeling is that it's too specific here to refer to anything other than the Babylonian captivity that was coming to the southern kingdom. He calls it, O daughter of Zion, which would label it as the southern kingdom. But the thing that interests me is the term that is used, and that is, it's travail. And frankly, I can't speak firsthand. One half of the human family does not know what it is to be in travail. That is, they have birth pains. Only the female of the species knows about that. And all I know is what I saw my own wife go through and what I've been told by others, that birth pangs are frightful. And it's something that actually no person could bear it forever. It has to be a temporary sort of thing if it lasted forever. Now, that's the reason the great tribulation period is a brief period. And this is one of the figures of speech that is used concerning that which is coming in the future. And the Babylonian captivity was a little adumbration of it. It was just a little picture of that which is coming upon the earth. And the Babylonian captivity is a warning. God has given many illustrations all through His Word concerning future events. They are historical events that have in them a message, and God recorded them that we might get the message that He is giving. And the picture here is that when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, and he actually came three times to the city... And finally, he leveled it burned it, destroyed the temple area, and absolutely left it in wreck and ruin. So that all of that is described as a woman in travail, a woman in birth pains. And this has to be a brief period or the nation would not exist. It could not go on forever because they couldn't endure it. It would be too frightful. It would be too terrible. And that is the reason that the great tribulation period must be a brief period. The Lord Jesus made that clear. He said, "...except those days were shortened, no flesh would survive." They wouldn't be able to make it through. But he says, "...since the days are shortened, well, there will again be those that are going to make it through." And again, you have a remnant, the 144,000 that were sealed at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. We see them at the end of the Great Tribulation on Mount Zion. They made it through. They came through and not only did he have a hundred sheep and one got lost and he had 99, but actually he started out with 144,000 and he came through with 144,000. Not a hundred and forty-three thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine. That's a very comforting fact, by the way. We move now to another section that we have here. Because of this, he moves ahead and begins now to speak of that which is coming yonder in the far distant future. And this, of course, is the time of the Great Tribulation. Specifically, it will refer to the last war. Not the battle of Armageddon, but the war of Armageddon. Verse 11, "...now also many nations are gathered against thee, and say, Let her be defiled, and let her eye look upon Zion." Now, immediately he's moved away from the Babylonian because here it's many nations that are coming against the nation Israel. And the other was just Babylon, at least Babylon alone, Was mentioned. So we have something different here. Now in verse 12 he says, But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Now they're coming against God's people, and this is a world siege of Jerusalem. It brings Jerusalem into the focal point of the world here. And this is mentioned again in other scriptures, in Joel, the third chapter. And we haven't come to Zechariah yet. We'll see it there. But it was in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So that here will come the nations of the world against this people. Now, that's in the time of the Great Tribulation, and it's during the War of Armageddon. And they do not know what God's going to do. They're coming up blindly here for judgment, not realizing that. And now I'm reading verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs bronze, and thou shalt beat in pieces many peoples, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Now, it'll make the six-day war look like peanuts. And after all, they didn't do so well in the last one. But in that day, God will enable them to defend themselves in that day. They are a weak nation today. They're absolutely dependent upon other nations. But in that day, they're going to be dependent upon the Lord. And you remember the prophet says, our help comes not from the north, it doesn't come from Russia, nor from the South, it doesn't come from Egypt, nor from the West, it doesn't come from Europe or the United States, nor from the East, from China, or the Arab countries. But our help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. And this looks forward to that day and to the time of the war that concludes the Great Tribulation period, the War of Armageddon.